normality in terms of uh, traveling is nice. But uh, flying again has been very disappointing because now all the rules that we were very confident from country to country, now we are not confident about that. Mm. When you go to the counter and you are going to do the check-in, you have to ask, okay, shall I show you my uh, COVID passport, my vaccination? No, maybe in destination. Yes, sir, do you need something from me? Do I need uh, some face mask? No, maybe in destination or in the plane. You will see in the boarding gate. Then finally, the rules are very strange. If you moved from uh, Spain to Sweden, like I did, it's yeah. a, okay, you don't need anything, just the COVID uh, passport in destination. If you go the other way around, you mm -hmm. need to fill a complex form, get a QR code, and the police in Spain will check. Then it's, a, it's okay to have the rules, but we are 28 countries, 29 countries in mm -hmm. the European Union. Uh, we are not able to agree on basic rules for flying. Then, so, so it's different for every country and it changes over time all the time? Yes, it's, uh, yeah, it's even really difficult to check in the website. Okay, what is the rule that is applying now? Mm. Then it's, this is for me very annoying. It's rules that they are changing mm. and they lack sense because if it's face mask or whatever, it's okay, but makes sense to keep a safety distance in a queue and then you are seated side by side with a person and why you kept the distance in the queue? Then it's, a, of course, the rules. We have to follow the rules. Yeah. We have to fulfill the rules. But we have also to see if the rules make sense or not, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah and I guess you have rules that you have to have face masks, uh, masks, but then if you have to eat or drink, then it's okay to still take it off. And, yeah, right? sir, they, they, they say, okay, face mask is uh, uh, mandatory, but when you take a bottle of water, when you uh, order some uh, meal, you can uh, remove the face mask. What does it mean that, okay, in a flight of one hour from uh, Lulio to Stockholm, you can be 45 minutes without mask? Mm. Then what is the point? There's no point. It's, uh, this is something that they're... But yeah. however, yeah. they don't explain that they are having EPA filters and other technologies that they are helping much more than the face mask. Right. We have technologies to clean the air, and I think yeah. it's the planes are... Uh, f places that the air is extremely clean. The air mm -hmm. is renovated in every uh, every minute or every second mm -hmm. minute. And with EPA filters that they can keep them, they should explain that. Okay, it's a, we have some rules, but also the technology is helping for that, right? I can, if we start moving to, to like a or comparing to AI, you know, AI can be built by manually defining a set of rules, or you can try to do a machine learning approach that actually try to automate, you know, learning the rules from data instead. It seems like in this case, it's very much a manual approach in EU, where every country is manually defining a set of rules and they are not consistent with each not, other. Not consistent, country. not coordinated. And they change all the time and they're not even logical in some sense, right? I think it's uh, this, uh, uh, the scientific approach here is trial and error. <laughs> this is, uh, and this is not a, uh, and when you are uh, a scientist and you try to do something with mm. trial and error, believe me, that is not a good approach mm. because it's a, uh, just try and if it doesn't work, try a different thing. It's a, uh, yeah. yeah, it's a uh, successive uh, approaches is not, uh, approximations is not good. But you, you've been traveling because I haven't really been traveling outside yeah, Sweden. For a long time, but since you have uh, your background, you've been actually doing quite uh, some traveling through the pandemic, I, I assume. Yeah, yes, sir, I did. And yes, but the situation for traveling was not very, very nice sir, during that time because yes, sir, uh, actually in the very, very beginning between the uh, be, before the vaccines were uh, were in place is, you know, the 
uh, they, people got confused. You didn't know what to do. Mm-hmm. It's uh, actually the figures by some countries, that is, uh, if you travel to Asia or some places, the figures are not real. You have to uh, check if the figures are uh, real. It's, uh, and also the uncertainty that, okay, if I get sick in some remote country and I have to land in the hospital there, what may happen with me? Because this is kind of uh, things in the very beginning were happening. You know, the news were so bad that, okay, it's, uh, what happens if I get sick in India and I land up in a hospital and it's, yeah, you know, then it's, then, uh, now, thanks God, I think it's, this is, uh, this is shorted out as with the, with the vaccines. We have some confidence uh, on uh, the trips, but uh, certainly in the, during the pandemic, it was really, really tough to do. So, 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 Bottom line, during the pandemic, there was very little coordination. And now with the vaccines era, it's a little bit better. Uh, Would you say it has improved? Yes, I think it's before the pandemic, uh, the chaos was total. I think uh, the chaos was um, crazy. But within the European Union, we did very, very bad the uh, pre-vaccine era because uh, we was not, we were not sure. And the, for me, the European Union was very passive in taking over the situation. Right? Mm-hmm. The, the countries they did their best, but they didn't. They were not coordinated. So it was not a demonstrated leadership from the EU. Definitely, <coughs> definitely not. For yeah. me, definitely not. Uh, yeah. However, at least the uh, EU took the uh, took over the leadership for the vaccine, the, to purchase the vaccine and the distribution of the vaccines. And I think it's uh, more or less we have 70, 80 percent of the uh, European population in some countries uh, vaccinated. And I think this is quite an achievement. Yeah. But for me, it's quite an achievement. It's a late achievement. Yeah, but it's interesting because if you talk now about the why we want EU, what's the purpose of EU really? And and one of the key things is to have coordination. One of the key things is to have leadership when it's needed. And the interesting thing is that we can talk about EU as good or bad, but here you can really see the benefits when they take the leadership. And when they don't take the leadership, it's like, well, then I don't want to pay for that. Yeah, this is actually, you are absolutely right. When the EU takes the leadership, the results are very, very evident. And we can say that, okay, it's worth to have the EU. But when we don't have this kind of leadership, we are a bunch of countries not coordinated. And we are going back to the times of the mid of the 20th century. Then this is this is something that we shouldn't repeat. But I really hope that the EU has learned also from the pre-vaccine uh, time uh, what uh, is the impact of uh, this lack of coordination. And, and what is the problem with it? With it? Why don't we have coordination? Is it too big? Is it too difficult? Is it the mandates? What is your personal You know, it's uh, during the pandemic and it's, uh, I'm talking about this uh, AI topic that we are talking here. Uh, there, the dilemma was, shall we listen to the politicians or to the technicians? Mm. And this is something that uh, the dilemma has been on the table all the time. Shall we take decisions uh, by politicians or by technicians? Shall we protect the economy or the health? Mm. And these dilemmas have been on the table all the time. Mm. And, the, and, and, and the governments, they were not clear to decide, okay, health first or economy first. It's a, this, uh, or for example... 
this political criteria or technical criteria. And this, they have been playing around, was not clear. They have been changing because, of course, the situation was also very dynamic. And I think, sir, at the end of the day, the, the, the science, thanks to the science, we have the vaccines and has been a coordinated effort globally that we cannot neglect that the vaccine production and research has been a very coordinated effort by many countries. And thanks God, this the vaccine has saved the European Union and the rest of the world. And this is a coordinated effort. But the, the science has been saving the situation, not the politicians. Yeah. Without going too, too deep into this, but, but you as an expert in Spain and been a lot in Sweden as well recently, what do you think about the Spain versus Sweden's approach to vaccine and corona in general? Uh, in general, I think uh, Sweden and Spain uh, has two good things in terms of corona is that the people want to get the vaccine. Mm. It's a people trust and it's the, we don't have any kind of a problem. It's a, if you uh, want to vaccinate even uh, teenagers or even mm. uh, kids, people don't uh, don't hesitate uh, to do that. Uh, problem is the type of economy and the type of society. In terms of uh, society, the Spanish society is a more, let's say, more social society, more touristical society. Mm. Then the impact of Corona in the beginning was higher because it's a, a, a Spain is a yeah. country that has a, one economy based on tourism. Yeah. And this is uh, obvious. And of course, the impact was much. And in terms of contacts, the contacts are closer in Spain. And, it's a, and in Sweden, I think it's a, the social distance is by default more, uh, more, yeah, it's a cultural, it's a cultural aspect. In this regard, I think it's, uh, is, it's okay. But uh, for me, I can say, I, I can say that uh, both countries, um, the healthcare, healthcare systems have worked quite well, mm. but uh, we have a common problem as well. It's, uh, we have not been able to take care of our seniors. And this oh, is something that is uh, uh, our society, should look back and, is, and check what has been wrong because at the end of the day, the people who has paid a high price in this pandemic uh, are the seniors, are the seniors that have built up this society and we have not been able to take care of them. Then mm. I think it's a, this is something that we have to, we have to shout out. Mm. But that's, this, this uh, truth is for both uh, yeah, yeah. It's a, but but it is global. I think it's, a, it's, a, it's global. We have not been able to identify uh, the most vulnerable people and protect them in the right way uh, because uh, in in the beginning the confusion was uh, so high that we were not uh, we were not able to do that then uh, but yes, i think it's uh, in the in the future is uh, uh, vulnerability now for example people t- uh, we are talking about the third dose for the uh, vulnerable people uh, for the vaccine now it's uh, now uh, we have learned something okay the, the people with higher vulnerability needs to be more protected and that's why they, we are talking about the third vaccine now. Then I think it's, it's, it's tough because uh, Europe is always learning uh, with blood because uh, first world war, second world war, and it's uh, then, but, uh, but at the end of the day, we learn, right? Yeah. Well, um, I would like to say with that, you know, that, you know, for one, uh, welcome here very much, Diego Galar. We're very proud to have you here. Thank you very much. A very distinguished professor, you know, that you've been in many universities, both in Spain, US, and now in Sweden as well. And uh, I mean, you have hundreds of, you know, over 200 
distinguished publications in journals and conferences and been part of uh, X number of editorial boards and scientific community uh, com- committees and you know so many different interna- international ju- uh, journals and, and conferences and working with so many European <laughs> research. I, I should stop, you know, otherwise you I can just speak, now. <laughs> speak forever <laughs> yeah. about all your you will amazing explode achievements. Diego's so. head. You will explode <laughs> his head soon. But, you know, one thing that I think is extra interesting is that you know, we, we, I'm an AI nerd and we are both. Um, and I think one aspect is that, you know, AI is, is moving into every kind of field you can think of. And AI is becoming more of a, like a natural component in, in every scientific field in industrial sector that we can think of. And, and I think from that aspect, it's, it's really interesting with your background to see, you know, that you also have very much, you know, experience in, you know, how you use data and AI in, in your field. And, and that's why I'm very much looking forward to, to having this kind of in-depth discussion with you. So um, very welcome here. Thank you very much, Anders. And, and if you were to start, you know, how, how would you describe your background? If you were to try to give you know, a quick introduction to people that um, don't know you, how, how would you describe yourself? My God, this is a really, really difficult question, you know, it's yeah. because my background, you know, my original background, I'm telecom engineer. Telecom yeah. engineer, and yeah. my uh, my specialization is satellite communications. Satellite. Yeah. Yeah. This is very relevant right now. Uh, this is, uh, but, so. but, but you know, but after that, it's, uh, I, it's, I have been in the university for very long. I did my PhD in industrial engineering, and I mm. came into the predictive maintenance. Then it's, right. uh, it's some kind of telecom, uh, industrial engineering, and finally, it's, uh, after many years of working for the industry, it's uh, jumping into the data science, data analytics, AI. As uh, you said, uh, the AI is everywhere and, of Mm. course, in the industry is there. Then uh, my profile, I would say that is some kind of a changing profile that has been adapting to the to the evolution of the of the technology. But uh, many people say that it's a. Okay, you are a generic guy that is serious, but you, you know, it's a, I have a strange, a strange profile because it's some kind of miscellaneous. It's a, <laughs> yeah, it's a, a telecom engineer, but they're working maybe with their machines like a, a robots or whatever that is. It's a strange, but for me, everything, everything related to the, uh, to the industry, to the health of the machines, to the technology, supportive technologies to, uh, to increase the performance uh, of the machines and produce much, uh, much more better and with, uh, uh, with lesser impact. Yeah. This has created a very, very strange profile. And also my profile, let me say that it's a strange because I have been always in the borderline between the academia and the industry. Mm-hmm. It's uh, uh, my life between Sweden and Spain as a uh, full professor in in Lule University is very academic with a professor of condition monitoring, but at the same time in Spain in Tecnalia where I I'm heading right. the the uh, the group that is very close to the industry. Then it's uh, I think maybe. I'm not a pure academician. I'm not a pure industrial guy, but sometimes we need people moving in this gray area is mm-hmm. to connect both worlds, right? Yeah. yeah. And before we, we can move into Techna, Technalia or and, and, and the Lulio University of Technology and what you're working with there, but 
Should we, perhaps if we were to start with your PhD, uh, how, how would you describe, you know, what did you, what it's, were your main contributions uh, and work in you your know, PhD? It's a, uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a very interesting question uh, because, you know, I did, uh, I, I'm not PhD in telecom engineering, I'm PhD in industrial engineering. Mm. And what I wanted to uh, check is, okay, with my PhD is, uh, was the uh, relevance of actually analytics in terms of uh, maintenance. I, I, I mm. was working uh, many, many years ago in terms of uh, analytics to uh, increase the maintenance performance. And it's, uh, by that time, uh, all the maintenance, I'm talking quite many years ago, the maintenance was performed with the uh, Excel uh, sheet, with uh, having really, really nice files with papers, <laughs> etc., like a room, uh, many bookshelves with uh, the files, and a lot of data, no information. Is there, uh, <laughs> and, and, and you know, no insight. No, no insight. Then when you were asking to the maintenance managers, people in relevant companies like General Motors, mm. etc., is there, okay, why you are keeping maybe in the basement so these uh, files? Uh, maybe, maybe in the future we will use this data for something. <laughs> there was some kind of a data warehouse just in case. Mm. And it's, then I thought, okay, is it? We need to take advantage of this uh, past. Uh, there must be some advantage looking back in the mirror yeah. of the maintenance to decide in the future. Right. And then uh, I started working, and uh, and finally this ended up in a in a PhD thesis. And mm -hmm. it's, uh, but uh, by that time, believe me, when I when I was talking about your automatic maintenance decisions, people thought, okay, it's, uh, you are crazy. Mm -hmm. You will need people to take the maintenance decisions. But nowadays, it's, uh, yeah, the crazy people are the ones that wants to take uh, by themselves the decisions. Uh, you were a bit ahead of your time, perhaps at that point. Mm, no, I think it's uh, you know it's uh, uh, people people recording files and keeping the data. I think in their in in their mindset they had the hope that okay this will be useful sometime. Mm. Then uh, sir, in their at the end of the day I think everybody agreed that okay it's uh, let's keep data because sooner or later we will need this data the mm. past to predict the future. Mm. Yeah. And I hope you can continue doing that given all the legal um, GDPR kind of related issues. But, but, but hopefully guess with machines, <laughs> it should be better than with private data, right? Yeah, we would hope so. And perhaps, you know, in maintenance, it's not that much personal information that is stored either. So, But it's still quite uh, sensitive information because mm -hmm. you are keeping information of failures uh, records of failures right. of uh, some components, some brands that uh, you cannot uh, make public. It's, uh, mm. If you have uh, records of failures of a component of SKF or ABB or uh, Siemens or whatever, it's, uh, this data is highly confidential. Mm. You cannot publish uh, information of uh, some uh, vendors because then you may be in, in a breach. Uh, uh, yeah, yeah. breach your contract. Yeah, this is actually, it's, uh, you know, because... Uh, all aspects of the uh, lifespan expected for the components is uh, is uh, highly restricted. You cannot say you cannot say publicly, okay, is uh, these components from this brand are lasting one year, two months, or whatever. This is something that is uh, not even the forensic engineering that is uh, very very common. That when you have a failure and you analyze the root cause and you see, okay, the machine has failed due to this. These reports usually are extremely confidential because they compromise uh, information about big companies, big uh, suppliers, and they are very sensitive with that. So this yeah, is other areas than GDPR, but equally sensitive. Yeah, I mean, I mean so many people, uh, and uh, 
also, you know, when where I work recently, I mean, so so many people are saying it's so sensitive and it's so secretive, and and but it is that for so many different reasons. It can be for personal information reasons, but also from a competitor point of view, as you point out, Ab- right? Absolutely. And I remember that from the Spotify days as well. I mean, it's super sensitive to share anything that has with absolute numbers in some sense to do because you know if that gets out, it can be really sensitive from a competitive. Kind of point of view, right? Yeah, actually, it's uh, now is if you go to the uh, vendors uh, that you can find all over the world, it's uh, any component. It's, uh, some of them, for example, they provide information in the uh, in the data sheet about the remaining useful life. Okay, this uh, this component, this bearing or this whatever yeah. is going to last for ten thousand hours, yeah. and they provide this information. But many of them they don't, yeah. and it's uh, and make this information public is highly confidential because you know it's uh, the decisions for replacement are based on this information then it's a really really um, really really sensitive uh, matter indeed uh, the the big brands uh, they usually when you uh, supply these kind of things you have this kind of uh, non-disclosure agreement that's okay mm-hmm. you cannot publish for example any kind of vibration temperature data of my companies nothing mm-hmm. this is totally totally restricted yeah so in short, if you were to just summarize in like a single sentence or something, you know, what was the, the main topic of your PhD thesis? The main topic of my thesis was maintenance, performance, improvement. That is, uh, okay. okay, good. I okay. Were, uh, the main goal of the thesis was to improve the maintenance performance. Mm-hmm. You, we were doing maintenance, but maybe not in the optimized way. And I tried to increase the maintenance performance. Actually, it's uh, the concept of maintenance performance I think I started talking this topic many years ago. Uh, one of the first person that started talking about the concept of maintenance performance because the maintenance usually is performed by people or mm. at least used to be performed by the, the workforce that is a maintenance crew, etc. Yeah. Then the maintenance performance is very, very linked with the performance of those people. And talking about the performance it's always very, very uh, tricky, s- tricky. Sensitive. Uh, yeah. sensitive aspect. It's, you cannot talk uh, about your maintenance performance. Okay, this uh, maintenance crew is performing better than this. That, uh, But now as a process, maintenance as a process, we can talk about the maintenance performance, how the maintenance is impacting the whole business. Can, can you just give some concrete examples of what kind of products are we speaking about here? That we are trying to improve the performance of the maintenance. Yeah, it's a, actually when we talk uh, when we talk about maintenance performance, I'm talking about the, the overall maintenance that you have in, a, in in on site. You may have a, a maintenance crew of eight, ten people, wherever. In a fact, in a manufacturing in a, plant. In a manufacturing plant or in a or in a railway, a railway uh, premises or wherever. It's a, with these people you get some availability for your assets. You, for example, 95%, 97%, whatever. Increasing the maintenance performance means that, okay, with the same people, with the same materials, I'm going to increase from 95 to 98% availability. Means that, okay, you are able to run your machines, to drive your trains longer, with the same economic uh, investment. In, investment, yeah. And this is this is very important because we cannot uh, neglect that now in Europe and in, in the Western world, we need to increase the availability of our assets. We have to run 24-7. Mm. It's uh, every time you shut down your assets for maintenance, you are losing money. Mm. Then the, the more you can run your assets, the better for your yeah, business. And, and if you go all the way to sustainability topic, how we actually survive with less uh, impact on our world, 
how we do maintenance, how we get more flexibility out of our power plants, how we can make that, that, that is a big part of meeting our CO2 goals and meeting our sustainability goals. Yeah, actually it's, uh, it's, it's, it's nice you, you link with uh, sustainability because uh, maintenance and yeah, we will talk uh, AI yeah. and sustainability, but uh, maintenance and sustainability are really linked. It's, uh, yes. uh, when it's uh, actually the maintenance, maintenance is directly related to sustainability mm-hmm. in terms that uh, assets that are well maintained they are more sustainable, they are eco-friendly, the emissions are better. However, assets that are not maintained well, and you can go to develop to, to developing countries and you can see that assets that are not well maintained, they are impacting the environment, they are impacting many things. Then maintenance is really, really contributing to the sustainability. This is extremely, extremely relevant. And of course, uh, maintenance in terms of, uh, in terms of uh, uh, let's say, uh, eco, eco-friendly process in the industry is going to be considered in the future more like a, a adding value rather than a cost mm-hmm. because can reduce the impact of the emissions and increase the sustainability lot. I think we will move into the whole sustainability and, and circular economy <laughs> topic very shortly. Um, but just to cover your background a bit, and um, you did your PhD and you continued uh, then for, for a number of different uh, positions, both a professor in, in Spain and US, etc. Um, I don't think we can cover everything because then we will just speak of your, of your background in, in, in the rest of the podcast. But um, I'd like to speak, you know, for one, about the, the Technalia um, work that you're doing. You're the head of maintenance and re- re- reliability there, and, and also about the Lulu University of Technology. But is there something, before we move into that, that you'd like to highlight? Something that you've done in the past that, that we, we... That know, took you there. That yeah. is a lot. We need to know that yeah, step. I think, it's, uh, you know, I have, been, I have been moving a lot. This is, mm-hmm. uh, uh, this is true. And, yes, sir, and uh, I have been moving... Uh, from teaching, uh, doing research, I have been, I have been in the in the industry. Yes, sir. I must say that I think, sir, my, uh, my, my uh, let me say that my father uh, influenced me a lot in terms of uh, in terms of uh, like uh, uh, moving around because he was a maintenance manager for many 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 years and uh, he uh, actually he helped me to touch the ground. Yes, uh, to be realistic, not just. Uh, uh, in the in the cloud without uh, any contact with the reality and it's, uh, and it's, I must say that for me uh, was important to move to different places especially when I uh, before going to uh, Tecnalia and uh, to and coming to Lulio in the uh, in the European University of Madrid uh, so I, I I had the chance to start developing uh, all these uh, all these concepts, I started uh, working with a powerful uh, team there, and I think from Madrid I can say that for was for me my takeoff to the situation that I uh, I'm I'm working now with this kind of uh, industrial analytics, industrial AI profile mm-hmm. that I have configured. This is maybe the very beginning of beginning my, of, of that, my, that yeah. part of the journey. Yes, that was Madrid. Yes. Nice. And what was your position in Madrid? In Madrid, I was in the uh, in, in the industrial uh, engineering department. It's, uh, I had the chance to uh, work in many many uh, projects, coordinate many many uh, theses there, and it's, uh, and I had the first contacts with the big 
a, a Spanish industry. Mm. It's, uh, at the end of the day, I'm born in Zaragoza. That is a, a nice city, but not big one. It's uh, then Madrid, the capital is, uh, is where uh, all the big companies, they have the headquarters. And, it's, uh, and that university had the chance to start collaborating with the big sharks, let's say, mm. right? And then it's, uh, and, uh, this uh, university belongs to the Laureate uh, Universities. That is a big group all over the world. Mm. I had the chance to travel a lot and uh, see different realities, industrial environments. And then for me, uh, open up my mind. And I think it's, uh, I, I have to thank that time there. Mm. Yeah. Interesting. <coughs> and now, if we were to move, before we go to Lulio University of Technology and, and speak a bit more about um, Technalia, can you just start by, by giving a bit description for people that know what that company is? What do they do? And uh... Yeah, Technalia, Technalia is a research institute, same as uh, you can find in Germany with Fraunhofer or in uh, Finland with BTT or in Norway with uh, Sintef. And here in Sweden, we have RISE. Mm. It's, uh, the, reason, the reason for this kind of institutes like Technalia uh, is and I think it's it's it's, it's good. Uh, it's something that is doesn't exist in many places. Mm-hmm. But uh, when we talk about research, the, the universities usually in a scale of technical readiness level, the TRL, that yeah. is uh, how mature is the product. The universities usually move between one and three. It's a mm-hmm. maximum four, but very seldom they reach to four. Uh, then the industry doesn't want to listen anything below seven or eight. Then you have this gap that you have to bridge. You mm-hmm. need someone to take the technology and the science and take it up to the, from TRL three to TRL seven or or eight. And the, and the top one is ten, right? Yeah, yeah top yeah. one ten, ten is ten when, is full general availability. Yeah, it's a, no, it's some product that you can commercialize. This yeah. is a, a, we start from the concept, uh, the proof of concept, the demonstrator, a demonstrator in in a lab, demonstrator in, in real uh, in real industrial settings. Up to the ten, that is okay when you can come yeah. and sell the product. So, so T- say, sorry, TRL. That's the, what is that? Say, technical readiness level. And, and, and technical readiness level is a KPI used for the academia, into the research institutes, into the in, industrial. Yeah, it's, a, it's very used in the European Union yeah. and, al- and also and also in in US to define uh, in which uh, level of maturity you are doing your research. If you mm-hmm. are doing your research in a very, doesn't mean that uh, if you are working in a TRL2, uh, you are bad. No, no, it's the other way around. TRL2 is, uh, for example, the basic science, physics, chemistry. But we are talking about horizons. Yeah. Uh, they, horizons to commercial availability. Yes. It's uh, from, uh, actually from TRL3 to 7 or 8, you may have 5, 6 years. From TRL2 to 10, you may have 10, 15 years, right? Mm. It's, uh, but of course, the basic science, they are in the t- low TRLs and the industrial industrialization of the product is high TRL. This these uh, research institutes, the mission uh, is to bridge the gap between the universities mm. and the industry. Mm. And I think they are doing a good work there. So where do you place Technalia in the te- uh, technology readiness level? It's, uh, actually, Technalia is in the middle. It's uh, in the, what we call the Death Valley. Yeah. It's uh, taking the science of the university, that they are doing a fantastic work up to TRL three mm-hmm. and taking this up to the industry to eight or nine and uh, of course when we reach eight or nine someone the, jumps 
Uh, many times, uh, for example, in Technalia or from Hoffer or uh, this, uh, Technalia has one, uh, one um, division that is Technalia Ventures that creates a spin-off to many business. times to commercialize, commercialize. And, uh, and do business. Then uh, sir, this is the this is the idea. It's uh, from uh, from scratch to market, mm. and uh, this is uh, a, a formula that are now in Sweden we have with rice as well, and I think it's the right decision because otherwise we always talk about the gap between the yeah. academia and the right. industry. But I th I think the way you describe it from Technalia perspective. And how you really, uh, Technala, in my opinion, has a very focused funnel. I, I find that quite mature. Uh, I think so to some degree, maybe technology has done this a little bit longer. You have been modeling out of the German example, because it, it is in some ways an innovation funnel you're working on uh, from academia to commercialization. Yeah. And, and, to and to really have that goal so super clear, the way you describe the mission of Technalia, I, I think it's very good. Is there actually is there, it's true that Technalia has been in the in in the market for uh, for quite many years, learning the learning the German model, is there, and and also looking that they're in US, for example, uh, the model that they have based on the universities mm. is not that successful. Yeah. Is there, we have to be aware that in the universities, if you try to emulate this and go uh, to high TRL then the universities usually don't succeed there. Then mm -hmm. you need some kind of intermediate uh, entity that is doing that and talking to the R&D departments of the companies in order to fulfill the needs. Then, mm -hmm. uh, and also one thing that Technalia and the rest of research institutes in Europe they are doing is not only they work with the local authorities and the local companies, but also there's a big network a big and powerful network of research institute. Then in the same table, usually you have RISE, you have Fraunhofer, you have Technale, you have all of this. Then it's then uh, the, the efforts in, in the EU arena can be coordinated. And, and this is quite an and, achievement. And, and I think this is the big achievement linking back to the whole coordination topic to go in a coordinated way from university level into this intermediary. This gap needs coordination. And I think that's where if you consolidate from the university to the research institutes, then the possibility of European coordination is much, the chance yeah. is higher. Yeah, actually, sir, we have to, we have to uh, recollect that uh, when we look back in the uh, first uh, programs of research of the European Union, yes, sir, the research was good and the European Union has been paying a lot of money, but the research was never transferred to the industry. Then for many years, the FP5, the framework program, 5, FP6, etc., they were lacking this kind of, okay, fantastic demonstrators, fantastic pilots, never transferred to the industry. And just to give people the understanding, FP5, <coughs> 5, 6, <coughs> 7, sorry, <coughs> is the European, you know, research programs that they have to give funding to different projects. Yeah, this right. is actually the, the, the old ones, let's say, right? It's a, <coughs> sorry, it's a, I shouldn't use these acronyms. No, but we use them, yeah. but then we take them. <laughs> but uh, this, uh, the, this kind of uh, research was good, but not transferred to the industry. Yeah. And I think the EU is, uh, and also the, for example, the local agencies like Binova, they realized that, okay, we need some entity that takes this fantastic research and is, uh, take it up to high TRL because otherwise the industry is not getting the benefits of this research that we all are paying as citizens. The, the, the industry needs faster time to market, faster ROI, return on investment. Yes. So for them to bet 
on many big money on TRL two or three doesn't make so much sense. They need to be faster and closer to. But then to give to to turn that around a bit, perhaps you know, in, in normal um, different research fields, yes, this is the case. But in AI, I would argue that the universities are so far behind these days that the industry is really leading both the application of the research and also the basic research itself. Would uh, you agree with it? Yes. Yes, sir. I yes. must agree with that. It's yes. just, uh, uh, the universities don't work well always. This is mm. the problem. And, mm. sir, and uh, in AI, uh, unfortunately, yeah, we are far behind. Yeah. This is something that, yes, sir, we are, we are far behind because also you have, let me, let, let me say that in the, in the, in the AI world, the companies they have recruited yes very it's good a brain people drain the brain drain we had yeah. talked about this before yeah, so in reality a, that's a, the yeah and it's a, i can't tell you that a, they have taken as my students pitch the students with mm-hmm. uh, master students uh, yeah mm-hmm. is uh, coming with really good uh, offers and of course there's there's kind of a, 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 a Talent attraction is 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 really 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 relevant. Then then of course you have created a, a, one ecosystem mm. where all the good brains go to you. Yeah. And it's uh, not and, to me, but but yeah, to, to the big uh, giants. Yeah, and it's and and, <laughs> and many times you know in terms of uh, this is a market, yeah. and the universities cannot compete keeping mm. the yeah, no. keeping this because the salaries in the universities yeah. for research are not that high, and of course. But, but speaking about this, because one topic that we speak about all the time is called the, the AI divide. And, and what we mean then with that is that the, a few, very, very few selected tech giants of the world, the Google, the Microsofts, the Amazon, Microsofts, and the Taliba- uh, the, um, the Tencents, the Ali- Alibabas, and Baidu's, et cetera, in China, they, they are, are having all these amazing research teams. And they also have these amazing applications of the research as well. And they make you know, so much money. And, and of course, they, they cause the brain rain and they can pay the, the big salaries and, and, and they do that. But what's the solution to that? I mean, it, it seems to be concentrating all the you know, competence into a very, very few selected companies. And, and how do we fix that? It's a very simple question. Yeah, but I, <laughs> let me, you know. It's, no, it's a, a very hard question. I mean, I mean this is, uh, for one, do you yeah, agree let, with, with this you know, problem yeah, that we're yes. seeing? And, and let, how, how do we? Let me say that first. You have mentioned the companies that we all mention. Okay, yeah. this is the the big uh, the big brothers in terms of AI. Yeah. Uh, but one thing that we cannot neglect, and is uh, in, when we are in Europe, most of the companies that we are working uh, here, mm. small medium companies, mm. they cannot afford. AI services. Exactly. Yes. And this is, uh, you know, it's a uh, very few weeks ago, I delivered one speech uh, for Costa Rica. Mm. And they asked me about, okay, what about AI, this, that is uh, in the industry. And, uh, and, and I said, okay, this is the uh, analytics for the rich people. <laughs> because we cannot, we have to see that uh, these uh, cloud services, uh, all the services that we are talking that the industry can get benefited is uh, and are provided by Huawei, by Microsoft. Yeah. Is, uh, not everybody can afford that. And you have many, many companies. And if you look the whole Europe, it's, uh, even in countries like, for example, Germany, 
they have noticed that the achievements of AI and Industry 4.0, they have not arrived to all the companies. Actually, the, 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 in summary, Industry 4.0 in Germany, many mm. people say has failed. Has failed because has been adopted by the big sharks. Mm. They have get they have gotten huge benefit. And actually, if you look, if you look now in the pandemic, the big companies they haven't lost almost nothing. It's a, it's, in terms of benefits, they have been quite robust. But the small companies, mm, yeah. they yeah, don't know what is industry 4.0. They don't know what is AI. Yeah. And this is what is for me something that is a bit or a bit critical. How we can make some kind of a AI democracy to mm. give these services to everyone. I mean, let's go back to industry 4.0 uh, and, and the fourth, you know, industrial revolutionary thing. But just to come back to Technalia a bit and, and also perhaps compare that a bit to rise that we have in Sweden. Um, do you think that is the solution or for these kind of research institutes to come in and help uh, combine, you know, industry with academia and in that way do that? Or what uh, do you think? You know, so, uh, the model that is now... The adopted by almost everyone is that the universities uh, will define all educational aspects, yeah. but uh, the universities will have a strong links with the research institute, in this case, RISE or Technalia, mm -hmm. uh, in order to do several things. For example, sharing labs. You say if you have a good laboratory in KTH or in Chalmers or in Luleå, you don't need to replicate the same laboratory three times in Sweden. Right. RISE is coordinating several first-class labs, mm. world-class, and these labs are available for all researchers of RISE that many times the researchers also belong to the universities. You know, they, have, they have dual roles. Many times they have dual roles. Yes, absolutely. For example, in, in Germany, if you go, many of the researchers, they have the business card of Fraunhofer, business <laughs> card of the university, okay? and But RISE is, a, in this case in Sweden, I think is doing a good job. It's a, a coordinating these efforts and going to Europe with one voice, one voice to help the industry. Because in that way, uh, we don't have some kind of silos that, okay, this university is taking care of this industry. This We have a, a, one infrastructure, it's not duplicated, and, uh, and it's um, uh, benefit or, uh, and, uh, and cost benefit is much, much more efficient. Perhaps that is the, the nice, you know, solution or, or compromise at least, you know, because the big tech giants, they have their own research, they have their own connection to academia and they simply, you know, do a brain drain and, and hire the academic, academic people. But for normal companies, especially small, middle-sized companies, they, they can't have the big research team. They can't have all the connections to academia. So okay. then you need, you know, these kind of research institutes to, to actually Collaborate with them? Would yes, you? it's a, actually it's a, the many small and medium-sized companies. They can use this research institute, and they can use even the labs of these institutes. Yeah. Then, it's a, they can use for it's a, many uh, labs that are world class. These companies they cannot afford these labs, but they can do the test in these labs. But not, not only that. For example, in in Germany, it's a, uh, Fraunhofer is a, has been working to create some kind of a, a cloud services to yeah. provide this cloud service. To the, uh, to the SMEs. And this is extremely important because if a company that is 50 or 100 employees, uh, maybe there's one guy of ICT in the company. Uh, this guy cannot um, handle the complexity of 
all the aspects that we are talking about, IoT, about analytics, about AI, if you can provide the infrastructure and the education from some kind of research institutes and they don't have to do huge investments, then they can access to resources that otherwise they are just restricted to the very big companies, right? But it's very interesting because then in order to combat the whole critical mass, I'm, I'm reiterating now with my words, if I understand mm. the conversation, like Google has their, they have it, right? They're so big. And now we have our university have something, but they also, they need to have economies of scale. They need to have something in order to get, uh, so this is from the university angle. And then if you flip the coin and look at the, who needs it, the small and business approach, they also need to, ha- to have a coordinated approach or they need to have critical infrastructure and all that. And then all of a sudden, what the research institutes has been going for is kind of f- filling that gap. I don't, I'm not sure they have fully realized their potential because I think this is, I mean, like to re- if, if you take this train of thought the whole way, we also need to understand how we t- should pump up the research institute even more and actually give them a little bit more different mandate and objective. Yeah, this is, a, you know, when we talk about our, about companies, we all like to talk about, okay, I'm working with her ABB, I'm working with Mercedes because they are such a big brands. But uh, many times, many times what you say is, 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 is totally true. The small companies, they need the access to that. Uh, have we succeeded doing that? The answer is no yet. And it's, uh, and I think this is, you know, the industry 4.0 this year, 2021 is, uh, is 10, is 10 years of industry 4.0. It's, uh, mm-hmm. 2011 is, uh, if I'm not wrong, is when, um, the first concept of uh, fourth industrial revolution mm-hmm. pop up. After 10 years, can we conclude that we have succeeded technology wise? Partially, yes. It's, uh, is populated to all the companies? Definitely not. And this is maybe what we have to uh, we have to be aware. Industry 4.0 is uh, populated in the big uh, players, and they have gotten huge benefits. And you can see the economy of these big players. But the AI, the data science, is in the medium-sized companies, not really. And this is something that we should think about it. But this is uh, talking about the AI divide, and and a little bit even down to why we want to demystify AI and start this. Uh, podcast and everything, the AI divide is real. And it's all about, you know, if we have scarcity of resources or so ve- very few is doing something and the rest of the world is not included in this, we will have a, a, a problem in the world. We know this uh, throughout the, the times, if we have scarcity in oil or a high concentration who owns the oil, you know, we can see this, we know where this is going. And the real solution now is how do we democratize AI, how do we accelerate the medium companies is actually for the society benefit of lifting the whole competence of an, of a nation or, or a region. It, it's depending to lift the medium sized companies because from that pool, we can increase in all angles. I think this is a, yes. a really, really important yeah. message. Yeah, actually there, if we cannot uh, make the technology, I, accessible for every company, definitely we will not be able to grow. And this is and this is the problem when the big companies, they are growing in a different growth rate rather than the SMEs. Then we have a huge problem for that. And it's, and this is something that we're talking about AI, but we are talking also about access to 
uh, IoT technologies, uh, software like uh, PLM, yes, uh, analytics, uh, data science, cloud edge, all technologies that we are talking is like even if you talk about, for example, augmented reality or a computer vision, is is a technology that we assume that is uh, populated, and it's not like this. In many companies, they cannot afford, or maybe they don't know even even how to get started. Yeah, how to how to start from scratch uh, for that because we are not in the research institutes and in, in the universities. These companies are not our target. However, in percentage, they maybe they are seventy percent of the economy. Mm. Then we have to target that. And I think you know this is one of the worst you know, mistakes that I think so many companies do. They believe it's a very like a junior mistake as an engineer that you think you know I better do this from scratch myself because I think I can. And you know what they are that you know people are doing and companies are doing. Ah, I can do that as well. It's not that complicated. And that's the worst mistake I think you know that so many companies are doing. Um, but yeah, but but, but but if you think about this, then the best way to combat that is to make a very open and inclusive environment for the for the research institutes. So so the it's so easy for the new starter to go there and get started, and then 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 that, that you will. That assumption will die as soon as you start but, talking but to. You, but you know, let me answer what your your Anders has been. Uh, you have been pointed to as a very very mm. uh, sensitive matter, yes, sir. <laughs> because when we are okay. talking about uh, about academia research, yeah. and yes, sir, let's say that in AI we have big players. You yeah. mentioned Huawei. You mentioned uh, IBM. In the industrial, we have Siemens, ABB, and us. Then we have their their sometimes their. Uh, how can I say? Uh, okay, this is this product from IBM or this product from Siemens is very expensive. Mm. Then in the academia, I'm going to do the academic version from scratch, and then from for this company that cannot afford the IBM product, I'm going to do something small just made by the university or made by the research institute. Yeah. This is a huge mistake. Huge mistake. Good. Yeah, I think it's a, uh, but for that, you know, what is really, really painful for me, and I'm trying very hard, believe me, is okay, we have research institutes like Fraunhofer, Rice, Technalia, and we have universities like Luleo, KTH, Chalmers. Uh, it's not possible to grow together if IBM, Siemens, or I mentioned, or Huawei, they are not involved in the research with the research institutes and the universities. Mm. Then if we work together, we have to find a way with some kind of educational license, whatever. But if we are working in parallel uh, silos and we never get together, definitely this is going to be a chaos. And this is something that we have to What's hear. What's the you know incentive for for the tech giants to work with academia in this case? This is the problem. Is yes, we have to find we have to find a way to collaborate because if the way to collaborate is that IBM is just recruit my people and then it's not <laughs> working with me, just yeah. take my people, then this is really difficult. Yeah. And it's uh, the, what is the solution for me? The solution that I have found. When I go to a company and I, I go to many companies, many many of them are very big. The companies they believe that okay, you as Technalia or you as Lulio, are you going to do this from scratch with Python or with the whatever? No, it's a, in the market you have these products. I can prescribe the technology for you, 
but you have to select the vendor. But uh, but one thing that is important is don't try to reinvent the wheel. Exactly. Mm, exactly. And it's, 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 we have excellent AI engines in the market in the different levels for operational technologies and mm. for information technologies. Let's use it even in the research institutes. Don't have the students or the researchers with just with Python or MATLAB. Let's try to find agreements with IBM, Siemens, Huawei to work with their products. Then they will see that we don't start from scratch and we are not that uh, that far away, right? I love it. Uh, yeah, I, I have to one. do a, a Henrik quote here. I get goosebumps. Goosebumps. <laughs> yeah. When someone, yeah, I always say that, oh, he nailed it. And, I, and I'm like, it's like a... Kodak moment, or is it like someone scores a goal? Yes, he scored. Oh, I get goosebumps. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. So what's the future of Technalia? Before we leave that topic and move into Lulio, uh, what do you think the future of Technalia is? Uh, is it promising? Do you think it will expand? Is it something that you change? What do you think about the future? Uh, Technalia, Technalia definitely will grow up. It's, uh, it will grow up. How many are they today? How it's uh, uh, almost 2,000 people. 2,000. It uh, uh, will grow up up to uh, maybe four or 5,000 people in mm-hmm. the future. You, yeah. It's uh, because this is needed, of course. But uh, the future, the future of Technalia, I think it's promising. It's promising because if we don't have this entity bridging the gap, it's, uh, the universities are doing an excellent work, mm. but the industry needs someone to uh, to le- leverage the knowledge in terms of practical things. Yeah. And I'm going to tell you one simple uh, example. I work with pretty much with the automotive industry. Yep. The automotive industry is uh, uh, when the universities cooperate with the automotive industry, uh, they are very satisfied when they see the outcomes, but uh, when you talk to them, they say, okay, what the university is doing is great, but you know, I want to have it in my platform, mm-hmm. running in my machines. Yes. 24 it's, months. Uh, yes. 12 months. Uh, and, it's, uh, and, and, and you know, and the time to market, I cannot, what you are saying is nice, but don't tell me that we'll be ready in five years. Mm. My time to market must be less than a year. Mm. If you are going to take more than a year to bring this technology here, okay, bye-bye. I have to call, go. Call me, call me in four years. Yes. <laughs> yeah, then there's a time to market. Is a, definitely the research institutes, we need to play that role, reducing the time to market uh, for the products that the industry has some interest uh, from the universities. I think it's well summarized. Yes, and I get five different topics I'd like to continue with here, but (laughs) I'm trying to bite my tongue not to do that right now. I'll add it to the list here later, so if we have time, we'll move into that. But let's uh, speak about Lulio a bit. Uh, Perhaps you can start with speaking just a bit. How how did you get in contact with Lulio and and Sweden, perhaps? Actually, this this is, uh, you know, uh, let me me 30 seconds to, to, to tell you something. The first time, uh, you know, I bought a car in Lulio, it's, uh, I bought an insurance it's for my car, mm-hmm. it was a Saab, so, a Saab yeah, 9.5, so. really nice car. <laughs> nine, nine really five. Nice now car. we can tell it, 1980. Uh, yeah, then it's, then it's, uh, then, then it's, uh, uh, I called the insurance, it's, uh, then they, I said, okay, I want an insurance, blah, blah. Then, then the guy asked me, it's, uh, you are not uh, Swedish, and I say, no, I'm, I'm a Spanish, it's, uh, okay. He said, where are you? Then I say, I'm living in Lulio. Then the guy started laughing. He mm-hmm. said, but what is one Spanish guy doing in Lulio? With, with, 
full of reindeers and mooses. Then I said, okay, what is there? This is something that I will never forget. I will never forget because the guy, the insurance guy, told me, uh, do you need extra insurance in case you hit an animal? Then I said, what is that? Is may I hit an animal? And he said, do you drive from Lulio to Kiruna? I said, yes, because I work many times with projects in the mines. Then you need, because you may hit a reindeer. <laughs> then, then, I said, then I was, I was so, you know, as I was, I was really, really shocked. I, I started, you know, this is many, many years back. And I still remember the guy laughing on phone. He's like, what a Spanish guy is doing in Lulu. Yes, sir. Let me say that I, you know, it's uh, after uh, I was a prorector of my university in Zaragoza uh, for many years, uh, and uh, I I needed to uh, I wanted to be in a sabbatical year doing some uh, research uh, out of Spain, and I went to Lulio just for six months. It's mm. then, uh, this uh, is a long six months. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's a six months that are lasting. What year was this? Uh, yeah, are the six longest months of the history. <laughs> and it's, uh, then I, I is went. Is it eighties, nineties? Yeah, ninety-five. It needs to be. This is actually it's a very 12, 13 years is uh, I bought a sub ninety five in a in a second hand of oh, course, yeah, but okay, okay. but was really really nice car. I still remember <laughs> that. And it's a uh, twelve thirteen years now. And you know, it's a, I went there just for six months. I I saw I fall in love of the. Uh, Swedish system in the universities. I think uh, I must say that the Swedish universities, uh, they are very good having contacts with the industry. Yes, sir. We were talking about the uh, European um, system, the Bologna process by that time, and Sweden was really, really ahead of time uh, deploying that. And, it's, um, and, and I fall in love of, the, of that. The contacts, uh, Lulio, you know, Lulio University is, of course, is far north, but the relations with the mining industry, the relations with it, they are, it's uh, with Traffic Burkett, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's gold. The, it's, uh, the relation is excellent. Mm-hmm. It's a very international university. I fall in love. Then uh, finally, after six months, I extended for two years and after two years I'm still there this is a, <laughs> I must I must say that it's a was a, was some decision it's a tough decision but uh, my decision to go there was because the group there by the time that I I, I went was the biggest group in Europe talking about intelligent maintenance it's, uh, by that oh, okay. time uh, the, the the group in Luleo was a leader it's a we are still maybe the biggest group, but, but because you even had the conference, the intelligent uh, maintenance conference, yes, yes, and was one of the first. Yeah, actually, we were we have been talking about the concept of e-maintenance, e-maintenance, the uh, all maintenance aspects uh, powered by computing. It's a very long ago when uh, AI was no there almost. It's a, we were talking about uh, about e-maintenance. Then uh, I think it's a, it was a decision that uh, changed the life. It's a, I went just for six months and, you know, I'm still I'm still there. But it's interesting because it's it's a very international university. You have Uday uh, Kumar it's as a, well. Yeah, uh, actually uh, Uday Kumar, that is the head of the uh, group and is a, and has been always a leading person in this uh, in this topic. The connections of Lula University is, uh, I must say that, for example, is uh, my co- I have been um, 
teaching in or Maryland or in uh, Chongqing University, Sunderland. Connection, the connections, the Lulu as a international hub is uh, is amazing. Is uh, then uh, definitely there is true that is uh, is the climate definitely is harsh and you may hit a rainbow time to time. <laughs> but there's but there the university, the university is is excellent. But on, not only the university, the way that the Swedish universities work together because uh, I cannot say uh, bad words from uh, any Swedish university because I have been working in many projects, Lulio with Lean Shopping, mm. with TTH, with uh, Chalmers, and this is really, really uh, excellent. Uh, I must say that also during three years, uh, I was uh, in Shofde, uh Professor of Maintenance, and I had the chance to chair the Volvo uh, the Volvo Group in maintenance research there yeah. in Shovde and it was excellent as well. Then I think it's the the for me the relation between the industry and the universities in Sweden I think is something rather unique. Mm, is there yeah yeah the research ecosystem is rather unique. So that must, so it's interesting because otherwise you wouldn't have stayed and you know you you make this is it your first home or second home now? Uh, now I. I actually, I would say that I'm a, my mother says that I'm a sophisticated homeless, you know. Because, you know, I, I'm, I, sir, I, I should have some tent in the, in the back. So I'm, <laughs> I, actually, I don't really know where is my home, but, but I try, I try, you know, I try to enjoy wherever I am. It's, uh, but uh, for many years has been my home. Now I'm maybe 50 50, but for many years has been my home. And this is, uh, uh, this has been, some uh, you know some something different in my life and and this is swinging back to the context of your life and the pandemic because your 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 life and your you know your what you're passionate about and and how you are sort of in my opinion a europol europolitan uh you the europolitan life was hit uh, from the pandemic yeah, so it's it interesting to hear your view of of the pandemic because your your, your way of life. Yeah, actually, sir, the, the, the pandemic changed dramatically everything. This is, sir, uh, I'm not sure for many people, but for me that are, I can take around 10 to 15 planes every month, it's uh, suddenly lockdown, <laughs> no tri no trips, and uh, sir, uh, the horizon that was really, really uncertain. And we were not sure when this, because I, I still remember the first lockdown in Spain that I was, I, I, 12 March of last year, I was in Spain and the government decided to lock down the country for two weeks. And I thought, my God, two weeks, this is terrible. <laughs> These two weeks were three months and one year and a half, we are still back, going back to normality. Then, it's, of course, as a human, you really wonder, okay, shall we go back to normality or this is going to be the normality normal. like this right. and this is uh, this is something that is uh, you know when you suddenly uh, shut down all your activities and and you change the the face to face meetings with the with the teams with the zoom with this is uh, the personal touch because at the end of the day uh, the the humans we are social animals yeah. and if we don't have the human touch something wrong in our brain <laughs> starts triggering yeah. right and then it's, uh, this is this has been tough yes for me for me it was tough in the beginning i must admit that yeah we leave the topic I, I just wanted to make that for me it's a different level of talking the pandemic with someone like uh, yourself uh, diego so this is uh, for me it has been has been tough in it and i can understand that many people 
uh, has been really, really affected by by that. Then now we have to we have to uh, take care of this post pandemic uh, situation that is not going to be easy mm-hmm. because the damage in the people is uh, we can repair the damage in the assets, but the damage in the people is uh, yeah, yeah the the fingerprint in the in the brain of many people has is going to take years to repair. Cool. And but then you got a full professorship, right? And it is in in a topic that I'm not sure really sure what it means. So please explain it to me. But it's it's in the topic of condition monitoring. Yes. What does that mean? Yeah, condition monitoring is basically all technologies to take care of the health of the machines. It's mm. uh, it's uh, I, I like to say that it's uh, it's we are like the doctors of the machines. Mm. Is uh, and, uh, and in condition monitoring, we try to see what is wrong with the machine yeah. in order to uh, schedule one action as soon as possible and prevent the damage. And yeah. it's, a, it's exactly what you do with that. It's a, when you uh, check your temperature, yeah. your blood pressure, this is condition monitoring. Yeah. You are monitoring your condition in order to take a tablet, a painkiller, or go for surgery. Yeah. Of course, you don't want to go for surgery the machines they don't want to go for corrective maintenance if we can do some minimal action with minimal intervention then minimal impact and then we can um, put the machine start up uh, up and running again very soon then it's uh, basically it's about the health of the machines yes awesome i know it's just you know um, like an um a sickness of mind that I, I thought, you know, conditional monitoring because I'm so into AI kind of thing. But this is basically the condition of a machine that is they're the trying con- to. Yeah, it's the condition of the mm. machine. This yeah. is a, and then uh, this topic is new and is not new at the same mm. time. It's not new in the sense that we have had condition monitoring for many years. Mm. We have um, checking vibration, temperature, whatever. But now in the last 10 years, is uh, is when uh, we have a lot of data. The Internet of Things they have provided chip sensors with technology in order to collect a lot of data from the machines. We can have now uh, thousands of parameters with a, a sampling rate that is then you can have gigabytes of uh, information. So, for example, you can take the just one engine of a plane is producing several gigabytes per second several gigabytes per second that are sent out to General Electric or Rolls-Royce or wherever, and in real time, they are doing the condition monitoring of that engine. Then means that that engine is monitored in real time, producing a lot of data and extracting information. I'm doing this separation of data and information because this is where uh, AI comes into the picture in two things. For me, uh, the moment that we have a lot of data, but we need to convert it into information, Okay, who can keep up with that complexity? Uh, let me let me say that I learned in one of the <laughs> conferences that uh, 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 you have organized uh, some years ago when I heard about the digital butterfly effect. I fall in love of the topic. The butterfly effect. Okay. Yeah, the, the, that uh, was at the conference. The, the digital butterfly effect for me was great because yeah. then I realized that okay, so if I'm collecting so much data. And I have to uh, filter the data and take my decision based on the data. Uh, can I keep up with that complexity? I cannot. Mm-hmm. I need AI engines to decide, to filter out the information. Because in the past, 20, 30 years back, 
one vibration is like one electrocardiogram. Okay, you can analyze that. But instead of that, if you have hundreds or thousands of uh, sensors reading, can you can a human keep up with that? Mm. Maybe you, if you try to do it, you neglect something and you have a catastrophic effect. That is the digital butterfly effect. I, mean, uh, I, I love it. Uh, and it's actually very similar to what I usually uh, try to speak about when I try to compare the humans versus the machine or the humans versus AI and, and try to see you know, what is really machines good at and what is humans good at. And one thing you can say, which is basically what you said right now, is that humans are really good, or really bad, sorry. Humans are really bad at going through a huge amount of data, like gigabytes per second. I mean, there's no way a human can even have a chance to to go through that. But machines are rather good at that. And, and they can do that perhaps not in a super deep way, but in a superficial way that is interesting. And then potentially we can leave that to humans to only look through the most important parts, and then they can do a more deep analysis of, of, of the more important part, right? Uh, you know, it's a, uh, one thing that I have been working for many years is, okay, uh, decision support systems, because mm. in the industry you need to take decisions. Yes. And the decisions are, when you take a decision, you take a risk. Mm. Then you have to uh, be able to say, okay, I'm willing to take that risk, I take the decision. You know how many indicators a human can keep up in terms of uh, taking a decision six or seven six or seven indicators figures is the maximum number that you can see at a a glance and decide is actually this is the dimension that you have in actually in the panel for example of your car is we are not that intelligent as many people think is when you are in your car is there, you have the RPM of your car, the, uh, you have the speed, you have the oil temperature, you have several indicators. Uh, there are no more indicators. No, you could you could put 50, mm. but it's not usable because mm. the yeah, human cannot keep up with that. And not only that, let me say that even the human uh, needs some kind of harmony. Have you noticed that the indicators in the car, for example, the 120, the, uh, the neural is actually straight. The, when you are driving your car in normal conditions, all indicators are in this position. In, then in this way, in this way, you don't have any kind of conflict in your brain. And this is very important because if we have many indicators, we have real, real conflicts in the brain to decide. Then we cannot keep up and definitely, as you say, and as the machines can decide much better and can, can handle it's a big amount of data, yes. In some way, if you were to put it really poorly, I guess, it, it's a bit fascinating how stupid humans are. <laughs> or we shouldn't say stupid, but we should perhaps say how limited we are in terms of being able to process a huge amount of data at the same time, right? Uh, you know, it's, it's true that compared with the computation uh, that we have now, it's uh, very stupid. Mm-hmm. But the human still has one thing that no, the computers or the animals, they don't have. You know mm-hmm. where is the death awareness. It's the, actually, the, the concept of awareness is something that the computers don't have and the animals, they don't have either. It's when I say the death awareness, it's a, you know, the human is the only animal that knows that is going to die sometime. The rest of the animals, they are not aware of that. You can see a cat or a dog and they don't know that they are going to pass away. That's why the, 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 unique, the uniqueness of the humankind is this death awareness. 
Uh, the moment that we can provide to the computers, to the machines, this kind of awareness, this kind of many people, th many people think, uh, uh, call it a uh, conscious or whatever, awareness that they are there. They have to do some kind of self-preservation and self-awareness. Then we will we, we uh, have transferred to the computers something that is rather unique. And we are stupid, but still, still, we are the only animal or thing that has this kind of awareness. You mentioned the word consciousness, and I am so eager to yeah, jump into that trap but because I, I listen to too actually, many Lex, Lex Friedman kind of shows. But so I actually, stupid. but we shouldn't do that. No, you, we should because no, I, I no, have no, no, I have, I have seen several there. of uh, Diego's lectures, and we are talking about the robotic laws and how we can apply that in condition monitoring. Mm -hmm. So when it comes to this topic of uh, consciousness and how to understand machines. There are several of your papers and uh, and lectures on exactly this topic. And so if I think Diego will handle philosophical conversations. <laughs> <laughs> so I think go ahead. I think this is really good, Anders. Okay. Should we move to that topic? Yeah, let's, let's do it. Let's consciousness. Consciousness on co machines. Machine consciousness. Okay. L let me do like a very improvised like an intro, you know, on my view of things. Okay. Um, and please then think what, or say what you think and disagree with me, please. <laughs> And, um, you know, so many people, I think, over uh, romanticize, you know, what consciousness really means and what it is. I mean, in, in some way, it's about trying to be aware of the world and yourself in that world. Right? Mm -hmm. And then you can try to, to measure that in different ways. And you can say, yeah, well, it's very easy to make a human unconscious. You know, either you go to sleep or you have some kind of anesthesia or you can just, you know, through some very simple means, make a person unconscious. So... What does that really mean? Well, I think people over romanticize, you know, what consciousness means. But in some way, it's about trying to have a mental model of the world where you understand that in this kind of situation, this is the state of affairs that we have right now, and, and this is the base, best way to take an action. And that can be done surprisingly easy, I would say. It's not so extremely magical that if I were to mention, for example, Lex Friedman, that he con continuously uh, say that consciousness is so hard to replicate, I, I would actually disagree in some sense. Um, what do you think? Yes, you have said something that I really like. It. It's a, a, a number of, let's say, parameters, variables mm -hmm. that define your context. This is the world that, is a, that, that you are living. And this is... Uh, to define for me the awareness, uh, sir, the, the 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 awareness for a machine or or a robot or is whatever yeah. needs to define the surrounding context around, and yeah. is a and a, be aware of this context is a, is what uh, is going to make the difference between a machine that is aware of the things or not. Like if the context, the same machine in different context can behave differently. Yeah. And then this means that it's aware of the context. But uh, this is awareness for me. This is okay. You can get awareness. Mm -hmm. Consciousness, uh, I may disagree a bit. Oh, good. I, like I, may, I, I may disagree because consciousness for me is when uh, you are, uh, it's a f very philosophical mm -hmm. talk, but, it's yeah, about no, the, but the machine is aware that is there yeah. and also is aware of its limitations. And for me, uh, for me, no, the, is is are humans aware of their limitations? 
uh, the, the, the main one that you are going to pass away. And this is the, for me, this is the, you know, uh, I'm going to put you one simple example. Mm -hmm. If you are uh, running, is doing uh, jogging in the street and you keep a constant speed of 10 kilometers per hour, mm -hmm. but your heart rate is increasing because you are not in good shape. Yeah. It's a, if you keep the performance, you may pass away. You are not that stupid that, okay, it's a, if, my, if my heart rate is increasing, maybe I should slow down because I'm going to kill myself. Mm. The machines are not that clever. If the health oh, is... Yeah, but, but, okay, please don't confuse it with intelligence because we, we can, I think, all agree that machines yeah. today are super stupid compared to humans in the terms of very many dimensions. Yeah, but yes, but, but, yeah. but but provide consciousness is, I would like, you know, it's a, uh, now is something... That are, we can we we can expand uh, mm. is something that I would like to find. I'm really open to find ways to provide some kind of consciousness to the machines because I think the next generation mm. of the uh, of the of the uh, industry and the transport and every all the assets that are surrounding uh, ourselves is when the machines are provided this kind of some kind of consciousness. Mm. But but isn't this if we if we follow the logical pro progression? You have a standalone machine with no data on its surroundings. Then you get awareness around your closest surroundings and, and the really interfacing processes. And all of a sudden you can start getting a contextual awareness where the machine can make smaller adjustments depending on, I know I have three other machines uh, next to me, so we can share the load, et cetera, et cetera. And if you expand on that concept, we, we are essentially talking about a neural network of data and information that stepwise can grow. So the point where is this only, where would you define it as um, awareness of context versus consciousness to me, mathematically becomes the progression of how much data and experience the machine has in its thinking of making the next best action. Do you yeah, agree? Yeah, actually, it's, a, it's, it's true that maybe from the, the context awareness is the rudimentary yes, uh, level form, one. Yeah, level one of the uh, of the consciousness, and we are moving there. Definitely, there is. I think uh, things like deep learning and yes. ma many uh, techniques they are moving in that direction, and it's a connecting this complex context, uh, actually mitigating and or confronting this digital butterfly effect that we were saying because we are it's not that transparent for us. Uh, let me uh, say one thing. I don't really like when people want with the explainable AI to understand everything is happening in the AI. For me, yes, sir, the AI itself has not shouldn't be transparent. This is something that uh, uh, when we if, if this is another topic uh, on know, its own. <laughs> but uh, but if we but uh, but you know if we want to go in different steps of the context awareness up to the consciousness, yes, sir, we need to uh, we need to move in this kind of concept of black boxes. For me, it's something that is going to be. Uh, but and uh, I, and I think it, yes, but I also I also really think the level of consciousness will in the same way as we we in NLP make bigger and bigger, uh, uh, you know, models with more and more data to train on. So the consciousness comes on, on the size of the, of the network it's connected to and where it gets inputs on how to train and get experiences from. Yeah, actually. It's a, so I think it's a lot about how much data and how it's connected to different data. 
you know, but it's not only data uh, collected by the machine. It's also the topic that uh, we have commented about social networks of data. Mm. That is, uh, is is something that is uh, is not uh, the human intervention when you are providing the data sources and you are limiting the machine. Okay, you are going to be drinking from these sources, not other sources. No. The moment that we open that, okay, the machine can take data from wherever uh, it wants uh, because it may connect to the machine that is uh, side by side that, okay, this data is relevant, include it in your context without any kind of human intervention. Then maybe the growth from context to consciousness is much faster. So you are saying, how can we make the, the in the same way as we, 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 we try to have machine learning or, you know, a different way of coding in terms of we, 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 we learn by, by, by getting more data and try it, try it out. The social network of the machines is a little bit like opening up so that, so we can allow the machine to take in more data and understand if it's relevant or not. Yes. Actually, imagine, uh, imagine some, uh, collaborative network like a Facebook or Twitter of machines. Okay. With no human intervention, where in a factory or in a fleet of trains or wherever, one train says, okay, this event has happened, for me it's relevant. Then another guy says, okay, for me it's relevant as well, I take it. Then they say, uh, or this is, be careful with this, or I need maintenance, okay, me too. These kind of things that, okay, they talk among them, they decide what is the, uh, what is the, uh, the information that they are going to adopt. And even the models we have in the AI, we have federated learning, we have multi-agent, we have many techniques that are maybe the rudimentary tools for this social network of machines. But let's imagine that we provide the environment for the machines to talk in an M2M environment, machine to machine environment and share information, data, events, models, suppliers, and they learn from each other. Then without the human intervention, the, 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 the growth rate in terms of learning is going to be much faster. Yeah. I'm really biting my tongue here not to comment too much about these things, because I, I think, you know, for me, you know, philosophical discussions about consciousness and, and man versus machines and, and explainable AI, as you brought up, is a super interesting topic. But let me just try to bite my tongue a bit more and uh, continue on the social network, because I think it can be connected to, you know, the, the levels of self-driving cars that we have, you know, they, they go range from one to five, where five is basically that you don't even have a wheel. It's no wheel kind of car. Okay. So you can't even take control if you wanted to. This is so level five. This is level five. Yeah. No wheel. And basically then you can see the car as an autonomous car, it's driving around and it can do the work much better than anything else. Or, and if any human were to intervene, you know, that would be a, a reduction in the quality of, of the driving in terms of safety and efficiency. But there is something that some people call level six driving. And I think that's basically what you mean with the social network of machines, because that is when you have level six autonomous self-driving cars, that basically means they are communicating with each other. So mm -hmm. it means that when they're driving around, you know, on a highway, every, all the cars are communicating with each other. So they know much faster than by just using their own sensors. They know that, you know, 
100 uh, meters or five kilometers ahead, there is an accident. And they communicate you know, in real time with each other, and they have a social network of machines or cars that allows them to interact in a way that is so much more efficient than if they were to, to, to simply make a decision based on their own, their own single car kind of... Yeah, actually, way. I think is the, the techniques of uh, federated learning and, uh, and uh, uh, transfer learning, they are very powerful in that. It's, uh, and, and, and we should move in, in that. Let's say that you have a neural network or any machine learning technique in one car. And this model is evolving. But this model is maybe good, but but maybe some car that is driving somewhere else, the model that it has is much better. Then, okay, don't share the data, share the models. And then I take the model and then my uh, learning growth is much, much faster. Mm-hmm. I think uh, if we are able to share that, it's like, okay, if you have a way to learn uh, Russian in two weeks, then please share your way to learn Russian because we will all get we will all get benefit of that. And this is something that is uh, don't share a thousand books of uh, in Russian. Uh, share the way to learn Russian. And I think this uh, federated learning and uh, multi agent is uh, we have the we have the ingredients to cook this food of uh, social networks. But again, we are uh, still in the uh, in the very very beginning of that. But but where I think this is important to have this type of conversations is that we need to have a vision where we think the direction is going. Because if we don't have this vision of direction, we don't know where to put our efforts in the basic research. We, I mean, like, I take the example of federated uh, learning, and we can take uh, discussing how good or bad that is. But if you fundamentally believe that we will, we will go for what we now talk about is a networked ecosystem in a completely different league of what we are talking about today. Uh, within an industry, transport ecosystem, um, then basically that has a huge impact on how we think about how we build systems. Already today, here and now, we can decide, do I build system that is not good at sharing data? Or do I build system that is built in such a way that in the core DNA, the core design pattern, it has an input port, output port, it has a way to connect. Can I make my systems today federated machine learning ready? Now, imagine if I now need to build a a data platform in Scania and I make the decision to build it the old way or at least make it ready for uh, federated machine learning, edge intelligence and stuff like that. I will be in a huge, much better position without, you know, I will... I can be future-proof even by by understanding the direction where the world is going. I can't solve it today, but I can sure make sure I don't dig the hole deeper. Yeah, actually, what you say is uh, the problem of this, uh, but this logistic problem, but this is there, is uh, the problem of the machine-to-machine communication to create this social network of machines is okay. If we, let's imagine that we have the uh, metro of uh, Stockholm, and we want the trains talking each other. This is doable. You mm-hmm. can do it, and it's, uh, it's not that... It's almost like a closed system. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's like a small uh, fleet with uh, all the peers are same. But imagine that you are talking in a factory with a robot, a conveyor belt, some kind of a, a press machine, wherever, and you want them to talk uh, among them. It's, uh, 
the systems, the operational technologies there in terms of PLCs, etc., are different. All the systems are proprietary systems, totally locked, and machine-to-machine communication is not possible. What is the solution that we are foreseeing now? Okay, if we the, if the assets cannot talk among them, maybe the digital twins of the assets can. Then let's go one level up. I create the digital twins of all my assets and the digital twins talk among them. And this is the architecture that we are now trying to foresee if it works, because this is a very relevant for us to see, okay, if we have to overcome the complexity of the machine-to-machine communication, let's go to a level where the digital entities, the digital twins, they are going the ones that they are going to talk. And this is the uh, the, the current, the state of the art now that we are trying to foresee. So, you know, for 20 years ago, you know, I, I was into semantic, uh, the semantic web and these kind of things, you know, we're trying to represent the knowledge that we have on the internet in a logical fashion. fashion. And we have stuff like description logic, etc. It tries to use as a way of reasoning about the facts that we have and know about uh, yeah, in, in the web. And, and this turned out to be a complete disaster and, and nothing really turned out from that and, and everything has been you know, dropped today. But I think still the core idea of, of you know, having a machine-to-machine kind of language and a way of communicating is super important. What what do you think is, you know, if we can't go the symbolic way, which the semantic web was about, uh, do you still believe that's the proper way? Or do you think another way is is better? Or do you have any thoughts about that? You know, all the attempts to standardize the communication between machines, they have failed. Yeah. Because it's uh, due to, actually, it's economical reasons. I, I, I have worked with uh, Mimosa, OSA CBM protocols that try to connect, the, uh, at least create one standard to uh, transfer the information between machines, even though the systems running there in terms of OTIT are different. It's, uh, for me, uh, physical connection with these protocols will never be standardized because the big players, the big players are not interested on that. It's a, and then uh, we have to go one level up, as I mentioned, in the, the as digital entities talking among them, because in the physical world, uh, if you go to the industrial settings, for example, Ethernet and all these protocols is a nightmare to connect the machines using this. Then if you want to go for something where all uh, big players can get together. We have to go to the to the cloud. For me, it's a it's a mix. Let me say that it's a mix of edge and cloud, right? It's a it's a mix of edge and cloud. Where okay, you have some local intelligence uh, on site, but the cloud is having your Facebook, mm-hmm. and then the machines they have the physical, let's say, shame the digital shame. There, uh, there, there, and then it's okay. It's where they share the data. But, but this. So we we are talking about ecosystem thinking in several dimensions now. The ecosystems of different machines in terms of how how basically we can get them to 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 collaborate. In, you can take this many ways, and then we are talking about the distributed system in relation to edge and central. Yeah. Uh, maybe we should uh, explain a little bit what is the uh, we, we have talked about the different machines and get them to talk and now we a- enter another dimension of distributed 
edge versus intelligence. Could you just elaborate a little bit on? But, but before we move into that, I mean, I think it's still interesting to try to just elaborate a bit more. You know, how do we really make machines communicate? But I think that's the reason. I think that's. I think going yeah. here is the same question. Uh, is it honest. really? Yeah, I think so. Okay, Sorry. is there uh, the aspect of edge is and an, an cloud? Uh, you know, that's a bigger the uh, uh, a big fight for some people to define. Okay, shall we go for totally decentralized or totally centralized? For me, the edge. You know, is there, uh, in the edge computing, you always have you will always have some services. Some services are really uh, interesting to have it on on site. And, and so, for example, services like uh, uh, health or some kind of uh, uh, performance monitoring, etc. you can have on the edge computing. But yes, sir, if you want to look not the short term, the mid or the long term, the information of the edge definitely must be shared in the, in the cloud. How the machines should communicate? Okay, uh, let's imagine that you have a machine, a machine that uh, is, uh, has some kind of in local intelligence with Edge, and in the cloud, you have the digital twin of this machine. The digital twin of this machine is what we call the virtual commissioning of the machine. It means that we have to create a digital entity that is recreating the data that the machine is collecting, okay, and making this digital entity with the data uh, understandable by the other machines that you consider peers. Then you made some digital replica in the cloud where the format of the data is understandable for all the peers in the population. So here, because now edge to collect, edge to steer the physical machine. Actually, I must disagree here a bit because I think edge versus centralized is a completely different discussion than actually making machines understand and talk yeah. to each other. Okay. So I think it, to just make it easier to communicate here between us okay. humans, not okay. machines, <laughs> <laughs> then I think it's good to separate the two topics. Okay, let's do that. And, and then, you know, if I were to just try to try to describe what I mean is that, you know, instead of doing the symbolic way or trying to have logic to define, this is what I mean with this fact, and this is how I should communicate in a standardized way between any kind of service in a plant or whatever, perhaps there is another way to communicate in a higher abstraction level or something, right? Yes, this is, I think, it's a, uh, I think it's the, for me so far, is the only way to overcome the uh, connectivity issues yes. that is that are by the by the big players, right? And and I think we cannot neglect that the digital twins they have given us the is digital twin is nothing that is extremely new. It's we have doing this for many years in a different ways, but at least now we have the idea that okay, maybe creating this digital replica, mm. all that you mentioned under about semantic web etc. Now makes sense when mm. we put it in the a format of this kind of digital digital entities talking among them. Mm-hmm. But, uh, but, but, but I, I don't think the symbolic way is the way to go. Or do you still, or do you believe that? Or uh, for me, you know that now we are facing we are facing the dilemma of this. I, I, I'm not very fun of the concept of the concept of the hybrid AI, right? Mm-hmm. Is there, that okay? Is there, yeah. and and uh, I don't really know what is the best combination. Yeah. 
Can you unpack a little bit on uh, hybrid AI? Uh, just it's a bit. So, so we have the, the old style GoFi. So it's called good old good old fashioned AI. That was the 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 manually defined rule based kind of AI. You know, if you want to translate uh, text from one language to another, well, you manually write down the grammars and the rules, and you you don't do any kind of learning approach. You simply manually define the grammar so of the language and, and try to make translation in that way. That turned out to be a complete failure, and of course it doesn't work and it's too hard. Then you know you turn to a more machine learning approach where data is used to learn the, the rules instead of trying to manually define them, and that moves into the machine learning world and having some kind of more soft representation of what knowledge is instead of having a symbolic representation with hard facts that of what knowledge is. So I would say that's one way to describe it, at least, you know, the symbolic versus a more machine learning approach. And what is hybrid? And, and the hybrid is combined a combination of the two. So yeah. Com the people combining rule-based with uh, machine with, learning. With yeah. machine learning. Yeah. Which I, I don't have much faith for. What do you this think, Diego? Not really. This is, uh, for me, for me, it's, uh, you know, I really believe that uh, uh, semantic ontologies and uh, uh, the evolution of semantic ontologies is going to be crucial, at least in the first stage, to provide this kind of uh, communication for the machines. So, so, so far, so far, my experience is that many people are doing AI just based on machine learning, mm. uh, doing a very soft learning. Yeah. But, uh, but they don't go to any kind of uh, complex ontologies. Yeah. And I think maybe it's uh, at least to describe, for me, to describe the reality, you need an ontology. And, the, and, and, and a manually defined ontology, you think, or a data no, learned? No, no, no. It has to be for it has to be some kind of a, a self-learning yeah. ontology. Then I agree. Um, then well, self-learning ontology. Then is it will be able to be a scale up in yes. a in a good way. Otherwise, it's a, it's a very manual task that will yeah will yes. go no, nowhere. Yeah. Remember the old psych project? Uh, I mean, do, do you heard about that? The C's. Ah, okay, doesn't matter. What? Now, it, it was a huge like research project in trying to define, you know, what common sense means, and and they tried to do, add all the rules in a symbolic way for tens of years. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, yeah. In from the eighties to the nineties. Did it go anywhere? Oh, they did a lot of stuff that no, no one never used. Uh, but it, yeah, no, yeah, it didn't go that. Much. But 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 so it, it's super hard. I mean, to manually define rules is, is yeah. it's not a scalable approach. No. I think in, in no. the short. But I I want to bear with me a little bit. I want to dumb it down a little bit for my own sake, so I understand it. So I, if I summarize, we we basically say that to get the protocols of the different machines to be standardized across the different vendors, who has no real monetized incentive to do that, will never happen. But if we if we take the data from here and collect it in a digital twin that then has to be in the cloud, it allows us to to work with cloud technology and very standardized open protocols in terms of how data is shared and all that stuff. Mm -hmm. And then we can start. Then we can start. I highlight have a much better chance to talk about standardization, open source approaches that is then based on that we are inside the cloud. So we have now taken many different OT technologies and protocols, and we have sort of standardized on the fundamentals of how we build big data. Yeah, actually, it's, uh, the good thing is that we don't have any kind of restriction to create our digital twin. Then the digital twin, we can play with that. So mm. We can create a digital twin 
uh, based on the data we are collecting with ontologies, with their uh, physical models. We have flexibility now. Yeah, we have, we have creativity. We can do whatever we want in a different the, way. The only, the only thing that we have to be aware is that, okay, when you create these digital entities, you have to uh, create the entities with talking a language that they can understand because the physical entities that they are reflecting, they cannot understand each other. No. And this is the uh, this is what we call the virtual commissioning. We are taking this to one digital space where they are talking. For example, we can use Mimosa or any other industrial protocol to communicate to to communicate and transfer uh, pictures, text, events, models, or whatever. And in this cloud, one thing that is important is that uh, everything is happening in the in the cloud. Then there are no massive. There are no massive transfer of data of data from the data from the edge to the cloud and in terms of sustainability that you were mentioning uh, Henrik I think it's much much better it's we cannot have one continuous flow of data the whole time uh, yeah because sir, in terms of energy and bandwidth is totally uh, uh, unrealistic then this is uh, this way this way I think it's uh, much much more doable so connect back to I mean like your logic and, and I appreciate this it's like the hardcore fact, how we get machine to machine to talk. So one of the prerequisites as a hypothesis now is to, to make that happen. We need to move it into the central cloud because that then we have the environment. It's two different topics. I mean, please don't. Uh, you know, I, I don't think it's two together. different. To it's two different topics, but one is a prerequisite to no, solve it. I wouldn't say so. No, you can do both edge and uh, centralized communication in, in the same way. But to, to just, you know, <laughs> try to make the communication a bit easier, <laughs> human to human. Um, we were speaking a bit about long-term, you know, how we can really make machines talk to each other and disregarding the humans. And, and that's one way to do it. Another way is, you know, how do you do it more short, short term? If you want to have something working in five years, that we have an industry that want to make the, the next kind of um, intelligent maintenance plants where we can really make a machine understand by itself it's really time to do something otherwise it will break down how do we do that then I, I think uh, one way would be to go for the really long-term goal of, of moving to a soft kind of learned representation of how to communicate or you do some standardization or you do some kind of protocol that you speak about that that we you know, we know is limited but it's at least it will work short term and perhaps i, I would say that that's more you know realizable in short term at least what do you think diego uh, for short term if we take let's say five years a short yeah. term that is Five years is now is now quite uh, yeah quite long, yeah. but yes, sir. Uh, one thing that is important, I couldn't I, I couldn't start a process of standardization. This, sir, for me, just uh, trying to put fences everywhere is never is never good. Is yes, then for me the main the main point here is okay uh, when we create the social network of the machines in the cloud. Uh, for example, connecting the digital twins, that is what we are talking now. What is the main purpose? What is the main service you want? Or at least the first service you want to get benefited from this social network. For example, we talk about a prediction of the remaining life of maintenance needs or, uh, or yes, production planning. Then uh, from this, we have to cascade down 
what we need uh, for that. And this is something that, for example, in terms of uh, maintenance needs, uh, is maybe the easiest way in the sense that is to provide to the machine the uh, what we have called the self-preservation. Okay, it's a, the main goal is that in this social network, the main goal is that the machines communicate to keep the health as high as they can. Then, if we have this kind of uh, this kind of uh, sent a statement that okay, the goal of the machines is to keep the health as has, uh, as high as they can. Okay, then then we can define. They should share models. They should share events. They should share performance. They can and then they can do it in an attended way. But it's important to define the service and then define what is going to be sure. Because if we are connecting the machines, but there's no clear goal, we will go nowhere. Yeah. So what you're saying once again is that we can think and theorize of how this should be done, but you always need to start with the core business question first. You need to be super clear on what you're trying to do because then you can limit or you can have a starting point what to connect and, and what to be shared. Yeah, actually, it's a, in this case, if you are talking in a uh, assembly line where you have four or five types of machine, different robot, conveyor belt, or whatever, it's a, if the conveyor belt is having a problem and has to tell the robot, please slow down because I'm having a problem, then uh, we are sharing performance and uh, health. Then we have to be clear, okay, what is the goal of the machines? It's a, we need to uh, is maximize the performance, maximize the health, then we will be able to create services, services uh, tailor-made for this, and the social network will be able to be able to scale up with more services. But in the beginning, it's a, we cannot create one open architecture for all kinds of services. We need to define first what, is, what are the very, very first-level services that the machine and for me there for me the machines and is the same as the the humans the humans in the stone age is a what was the first uh, service self-preservation was raining they were going to a cave they needed to have some food this kind of self-preservation we have to create this kind of service for the machines the self-preservation Awesome. The time is flying away and we have like 20 minutes left. I, I'd love to, to move into some more philosophical topics, if we may. And, I like uh, it. And, and perhaps one thing, that uh, a term that uh, you have mentioned a lot during um, uh, the time so far, Diego, is uh, industry or, or the fourth you know, industrial revolution. Um, and uh, for, for me, at least, you know, we can see so many different definitions. Of what does it, that even mean? And, and the first and the second and the third revolution, what was really that? But do you have a preferred way to define the fourth uh, industrial revolution? Yes, sir. This is a very good question. Actually, when you look at the formal definitions, it's, uh, everything is for uh, all kind of ICT technologies powering the industry uh, for uh, Performance monitoring and failure forecasting. This is the actually this is the formal definition that the Germans usually give. But let me be totally unpolite in this uh, yes, way. Yes, please, we love it. Uh, sir, uh, for me, there's no such fourth industrial revolution. Yes, sir, the the third industrial revolution with the automation 
uh, was something totally new. For me, mm. now we have a 3.5, but never fall. I like it. Yes. For for I me, I agree too. I fully agree. It's a, if you if you see the timeline with the industrial revolutions, I can say I can say okay, the first one is clear with the steam engines, etc. It's a, then it's the assembly line that is okay. This is nice. The third with the automation, the, I think it's uh, robots, uh, PLCs. I think they change the paradigm. But for me, uh, what we have from the third revolution is not a fourth revolution; it's the evolution. Mm. And, and there's right. good. So yeah. do you have had an evolution? So, not so right now we have been talking and we've been selling the data promise, but we haven't really done anything that is not incremental. No, there, there actually, actually, there's no, uh, there's, there's no revolution. There's in the no revolution. A milestone that uh, changes dramatically. If in the timeline, in the timeline, when you see the industrial revolutions, the first, second, and third, there's a date that creates a milestone, and the industry, the day after, was entirely different. Here is because someone said that okay, we have the fourth industrial revolution here. But I, I, I truly, truly believe in this strong statement. And we, I talk in other topics and, 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 and on conferences that we, we, are, we, are, we are going from a different micro life cycles. And I, I highlight the industrial evolution where, where, where automation of muscle power was in focus and where the true next revolution in general is the automation of brain power. And then we're talking about the fundamental pivot and on how we are thinking data AI first. And what I then highlight is that we're on the ending curve of, a Mac, of the S curve of the industrial revolution, but there are very few companies who have moved and are now pioneers or in the growth stage of the next macro life cycle. And in fact, we are talking about the tech giants. They are in the next macro life cycle of data and AI first, while what we are talking about the industrial setting is still evolution on this on the on the second curve. That the real pivot that we are where we are reimagining the whole factory floor has not happened. Yeah, actually, it's during uh, the period between the revolutions we have had evolutions, mm. and it's what you describe, and this is really nice. The problem is, uh, uh, I think uh, I don't want to make it too simple, but it's, uh, I think there was a need of a fourth industrial revolution. And we created that uh, revolution, but it's, but for me, it's uh, in, there was, and it's not bad. The evolution is natural, but when we call revolution or evolution, it's because okay, if we have a transformational uh, or supportive technology or a disruptive technology, and for me, this is entirely different. If you have one steam engine, or one, uh, and or from today or tomorrow, to uh, if you have today, for example the cars running in from diesel to hybrid. This is revolution. No, this is evolution. You have the driver, you have the same. But if tomorrow, as you uh, mentioned, Anders, you don't have any driver, you don't have a steering wheel, this is disruption. Mm-hmm. And I think, sir, we are moving, yeah. we are moving still in this, because if you go to the factories mm-hmm. and you go to the uh, PLCs and robots, believe me, it's not that different from the 90s. No. Then don't tell me that this is fourth industrial revolution. Tell me that okay, it's a natural revolution. 
very good evolution, but we are still evolving. It's still, it's still not the disruption of the core factory. No, it's, a, it's, it's transformation. That means evolution, but it's not a disruption. The, no, a technology didn't jump into the picture and change absolutely everything. I love it, Diego. And um, yeah, I couldn't agree more. Uh, it's important to to not overstate, you know, when you have revolutions, when you don't really do that. And and I remember there is this book uh, from Aya Agrawal. He, he's, he had a book called uh, Prediction Machines, and he spoke about different types of disruptions. And he, he didn't really compare to the industrial revolutions, but but he basically said, you know, the, the transistor was one thing that really changed the world. It made people not having to sit and manually calculate stuff. You can use a computer uh, suddenly, thanks to the transistor, to do calculation. And um, then another big disruption was the internet, rather. And, and that really made it possible to uh, distribute information or distribute products and services in, in a way that never was possible before. And then he says he has a third disruption. After the transistor, the internet, and the third is AI, actually. And, uh, and I think he actually says that AI is, is going to be an even bigger disruption that, than what the internet and what the transistor was. And I, I really like his way of of describing that and um yeah I, I could speak more about that but i think this is uh, such a profound but, way you know what really changed the behavior then you know you see a disruption but but if you look at uh, ai in the con in the uh, context of fourth industrial revolution mm. we have started talking about ai the last three four years yeah. then it's uh, because we have talked if you uh, look back 2011 uh, the fourth industrial revolution was IoT, it's a lot of IoT, big data analytics, that was uh, something yeah. really popular, augmented reality. Then, you know, it's a, a, the in fourth industrial revolution, instead of some technology that was disruptive, they, uh, the, the society put a bunch of technologies together. Big data analytics, IoT, augmented reality, computer vision, this area, and all this thing is industry 4.0. No, before before 2011, there was computer vision, there was augmented reality, yes. there was IoT. It's a, the conjunction of everything is true that has made the industry evolving quite much. And I think the AI will be the next disruption. Yeah. And it's a, and let me say that, for example, sometimes I have the chance to travel as you know very much and I had the chance to be in Huawei in in Shenzhen some time ago and I could see the uh, I could see the progress of Huawei and Foxconn when it comes to the AI and they are foreseeing a, a real revolution mm. but this revolution for me is not here yet not yet not yet okay so 10 minutes left and and okay we we choose between two topics now and you can choose, Diego. Uh, one is... It's up to you on this. No, no, no. <laughs> I, I want to ask you because you're, you're the star here. Uh, one could be about you know the research and the future of this research in general. And what I mean is, with that is that, for one, we are seeing research being moved from academia into industry. And also we are seeing this, you know, the archive kind of uh, movement where people are just publishing in the preprints rather than going for the big conferences and journals 
and and people are referencing you know archive instead of the journals more and more uh, and is that a good or bad movement that could be one topic um another one would be more into i don't want to say this <laughs> No, okay. I, I actually go back from this. Um, no, please say, say. <laughs> Take it. Um, Seems that is the interesting topic. The, uh, now he sold it, didn't he? He, he sold. He sold the second one. He, he does this all the time. He, he's a really good salesman. Okay. <laughs> no, I really don't want to go here. Um, now, it's more about you know the, the future of AI. What do you think about you know what, what will happen if AI continue to evolve with the very singularity and these kind of questions. And but we've been talking about this so many times. I don't think we should go there once. We again. go this in the after uh, after yes. work. We okay. have plenty of time to talk singularity off camera. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but but you know, you being such a distinguished, you know, scientist as you are, uh, and with you know so many awesome publications and everything. What do you think really about the future of research? Do, do you think, you know, the movement, at least in computer science and AI, you know, it's moving so much away from conferences and journals. And, and there is so much discussions about, you know, peer reviewing is not really working well and everything. What do you think about uh, that? Sir, actually, uh, the problem is that I'm really sad because I have to agree with you. Uh. That is, yes, sir. Uh, and I would like to say that, okay, the academia is in the front end. We are doing well in AI mm. and we are, yes, sir, and uh, we are the source that the companies are uh, drinking from us. It's not like this. It's not like this. And in terms of AI, what you can find in the universities uh, still is in universities and everywhere is still, uh, you know, we are very classical. What do I mean with classical? Uh, our metrics in the academia uh, are totally outdated. Mm. It's, uh, it is, right? Uh, for example, you have to produce to be a PhD, you have to produce a number of papers. Yeah. These papers have to be published in certain journals with certain acceptance uh, rates. Yeah, acceptance yeah. rate and ranking, etc. Yeah. Then, you know, if, you, if this is the metrics that you are going to be assessed, people follow that metrics. Mm. But doesn't mean that the metrics are okay. Mm. are okay for the goal to get a PhD, but mm. they are not okay because uh, when I go to the companies, and I was mentioning Huawei or Foxconn, mm. but when I go to them in Shenzhen, and, and they are in the top, believe me, and they, I ask them, have you checked this article? No. Which article? Or this? No. They don't go to these information sources. Mm -hmm. Then the problem is how many times one article that is included in a PhD thesis has been read, yeah. not by another academician to cite it, by some industrial guy. Very few times. Right. Then this is some kind of a, a is some kind of a situation where we are totally separated from the industry. Mm. And this is something that we have to we have to bridge that gap. Because mm. that gap in the field of AI is much higher every day. Mm. For example, in fields like, let me say, material science or uh, many other fields, uh, we are running parallel and maybe the companies, they don't have maybe R&D departments focus on that and they still rely on the universities. For AI, it's not the case. Yeah. 
for AI, but for AI, let me say that uh, before AI, in terms of uh, industrial, uh, what we were talking industrial revolution, uh, is the same. It's a uh, IoT, big data analytics. Is, uh, the companies they have done their homework mm. without the help of the universities. Right. And then now we are facing the problem that the universities want to jump to the projects and the companies, they say, okay, where were you 10 years back? I needed you then. Mm. I don't need you now. Mm. And this is a huge problem. And what's what, how do we unpack the solutions or what are the what are the things that is uh, metrics, the, the fundamental metrics, you, if you want to go to the root causes, and get back on track. You know, for me, one thing that even in Sweden we are losing is the collaboration between the companies and the uh, and the university. And this is something that is dangerous because the Swedish industrial system was built on a close cooperation between the academia and the industry. And now uh, the industry and many companies that are top, I, I cannot mention, but it's a, but there are many companies that are top, they don't find in the universities, the proper place to grow up certain projects. Mm. And they create their own R&D departments. This is really bad. This is really bad because we need cooperation with the companies. We need laboratories funded by the companies where students and researchers, they can grow up and they can create the next generation that is going to go to the companies. And we need, let me be honest, same as in the US, Master thesis and PhD thesis, more practical, less theoretical, and with a more more impact on the industry. For many years in Europe, when one thesis was having huge impact on the industry, many people said, okay, this is not a PhD thesis because it has impact on the industry. Yeah, exactly. It's crazy. It was a bad thing, right? It was a bad thing. Oh my yeah. God. This is sir, this is sir, because it's a, if you want to be a pure academician, mm. you should do pure things. Yeah. And it's, uh, now we have to be aware that in U.S. they have done it very well. It's, uh, they have applied thesis. And applied thesis is not a negative word. It's something done between the university in close cooperation with the industry. Mm -hmm. And here in Sweden, when I came, uh, let me say that there was one, uh, one thing that in Spain didn't exist. The industrial PhD. Industrial PhD was that person from a company, SAP, ABB, SKF, that the company paid that person to go to the university 50% of the time and do the PhD and then go back to the company. Because the PhD degree and the knowledge in the university was valuable for the company. It was that win-win. Yes, but this 10 years ago, this is going down, the number of industrial PhDs that you can find in the Swedish universities. And this means that the industries don't believe as they did in the in the universities because that figure the industrial PhD was rather unique. It uh, exists also in Germany, but it's but uh, I never saw that in, in in Spain. Now I see that this is missing, and this is because the diversion between companies and uh, and universities is there, especially especially uh, on AI. In these tech areas, big AI, big data, IoT. That is sort of taking another path. Yeah, actually, this is the the, the problem is that the, the the companies believe me that is and I I'm really sad to agree with you, mm -hmm. but the companies many times they have knocked the door of the universities 
they have seen that the state of the art is okay. You are far behind. Yeah. Then I cannot collaborate with you. Yes, sir. And the universities still persist on reinventing the wheel. This is something that is already in the market. Okay, let's do a PhD thesis to develop. It's already in the market. They're chasing the metric to, you know, to get published. We beat the metric. Yes, sir. The problem is if you don't change the metrics, you don't change the system. Yeah, it's a Very. bit sad. Well, let's not try to end on this kind of sad topic. <laughs> <laughs> Um, perhaps you can mention a bit about your future work. What's next in your life? A bit about you know what's your go- what's going to happen in um, in Lulio or in uh, Technalia? Uh, what's going on? Ah, this is a, this this is a very difficult question. We have been talking about uh, about a social network of machines. Uh, for me, my the, my current challenge now is working with digital twins that is uh, they maybe they got the companies demand more is uh, is many companies they want digital twins of their products or of their processes and it's uh, and the digital twins is like their political opinion everybody has a different one <laughs> yes sir then you need uh, you need yeah is sir uh, when the company comes and say i want a digital twin what kind of digital twin what do you want? what is a digital twin to what you? do you understand by digital twin Exactly. Because sometimes a beam model, a 3D representation for some people is a digital twin. For some, then it's. Uh, I think uh, still we have to work in the representation of these uh, uh, digital uh, digital twins. And it's uh, and we will move. For me, uh, still I see the uh, as technology digital twins and social network of machines. I see clear there. And as the AI for me, the servitization is going to be maybe one of the uh, right. uh, biggest... Uh, so what is this AI? What I mean? Servitization, uh, you know, for me, uh, in the industrial settings, when you sell, for example, a robot, is a, uh, you sell a robot now, but you don't sell the robot anymore. You are selling you are selling welding hours uh, to the company. Welding hours, servitization, yeah. yes. And, and then the company, what is the difference? The company, they don't want to maintain, they don't want to do anything with the robot. It's like when you have a phone or a car or a computer on leasing, you want just the service. Then what is the point that the manufacturer through AI is going to provide a service to maximize the performance and minimize the maintenance cost, etc. And then it's this is what our friend Matthias is speaking about yeah. all the time. You know, he's, he's speaking. This is a friend. He's a professor in um, circular economy or sustainability, and he's speaking all the time about you know we should not be selling a product or not even a service. We should be selling a function. Yeah. So so speaking about cars, for example, you shouldn't sell a car. You shouldn't even sell a, a car pool mm-hmm. or service. What you sh- should sell is I want to go from point A to B. A to B. And the, and the company that can sell that function the best. Yeah. You know, there <clears throat> a, a very famous Swedish company like SKF, they manufacture the bearings. Yeah. And they don't sell bearings now. They say that they sell reliable rotation. Oh, okay. Yeah. This is a, a <laughs> reliable rotation. That, that yes. sounds a bit, you were thinking about something else, I think, Goran, but yeah. No, that was not, I thought it was just funny. This, <laughs> this is actually, it's, you know, it's a, everybody wants, everybody wants to sell just the function. Mm. And this is because uh, we are yeah, we are not willing to pay uh, any more for the product itself. We yeah. want the function. And the function needs a good service. And the service but it also is provides by, uh, a lot of incentives for the manufacturers to, to actually think about 
you know, maintenance, right? And, and to think about the life cycle of the products in a way that they don't have to if you sell and you have to own a, a mobile phone or whatnot. But you know, but, but you have to change the paradigm because rem remember that a few years ago, you was, you were selling the product and you were selling the maintenance and the spare parts. Then yeah. you were doing business twice. Yes, yeah. exactly. And, <laughs> and you earn more money then. And, yeah. and many, many salesmen <laughs> of the companies, they were saying the worst for the customer, the best, the best for me. Because the more spare parts the guy needs, better for me. Yeah. No, now it's different. Now the man maintenance is in the manufacturer's side. Yeah. Then it's, a, it's totally different. And I think it's there where AI, for example, there's one company in Swedish that is excellent, Tetra Pak. Mm -hmm. Tetra Pak uh, is having, you know, around 20,000 machines all over the world. Uh, and they have all the machines monitored from LUT. And, it's, and they are uh, doing analytics of these machines and sending the spare parts and the service engineers just if needed. Mm. Then I think they have done a fantastic work. And of course, many uh, still many things to be done. But to centralize the decision support system in Loon and sell just the service. Right. And this is some the, the business model is entirely different. I think Sweden is doing... Really well, there are some companies like Tetra Pak, ABB, SKF, Atlas Copco. They are doing fantastic things in terms of servitization. I think you paint up uh, a rather beautiful picture, at least for Sweden, then, right? Um, that if we move in that direction, selling the service or the function and moving to a more sustainable future where maintenance is actually included as a part of the function, than, and using, of course, more intelligent maintenance, then we could have a beautiful future in the coming ahead. And right? for sure, a more sustainable view. Definitely, what you are defining, AI should be the real engine of the circular economy and sustainability. Right. And in this way, sir, if we are not the owners of the stuff anymore, we are just the users. And, the, and uh, we don't have to uh, scrap uh, the, the, the goods, then we will have the chance to, to, to change the tendency that we are having now, right? Then I think it's a, it's a, we are doing well so far. I think we are in the right direction. But, uh, but for me, one important thing is that it's a, the AI is very powerful and will trigger this sustainability, but also in a small, and medium companies and also in the developing countries. Mm. If we keep yeah, right. this in the island of the Western world, definitely and the big companies, yeah. Definitely the impact will be very, very small. Yeah. That's, that's a good awesome. summary. Let's that's a goal. Let's hope, that's uh, a good goal. Let's work for that together. Right? <laughs> let's do that. Um Diego, um do you have anyone that you would um, recommend to come on this show? Anyone that you would like to listen to that we interrogate a bit, like <laughs> yourself? This is a really, really difficult question, but I, I would like to uh, from I would like to have some someone also critical uh, mm -hmm. with their with the evolution of the. Industry 4.0. Mm -hmm. I think it's a, we have been uh, too soft. Yes, too, sir. too uh, soft. Happy. We have accepted. We have accepted uh, the without the, the fact of uh, of the 4.0 concept. Yeah. And even if we move, let me. If we move the 4.0 concept, the 5G concept, it's a, uh, we have to see the difference between 
evolution and uh, disruption and, and, and revolution transformation and disruption then uh, definitely I would like to have here someone from some SME mm, okay to to see okay how do you foresee the AI in the coming five ten years because so, so And a CEO of a, of a small medium enterprise manufacturing company, yes, and and reflect on his understanding of AI and how he has seen. He hears all the buzzwords flying around, but how does it work in reality? Yeah, in but yes, but but if, uh, just to see, okay, it's a uh, uh, one SME that can be hundred, two hundred employees. This is a uh, with maybe two, three persons in the ICT mm -hmm. department. And okay, yes, sir. The authorities, the government is supporting you in this. From the universities, you get support. Uh, can you access to the proprietary systems? What is the what is the degree of the implantation of the industry 4.0? And I, I I think if we take the scorecard of the industry 4.0 in some SMEs that some of them are famous, we could get a very very funny surprise. <laughs> That's an interesting one. I like that because it it ties well into our idea of demystifying AI and discussing AI is that we we need to look at it from many different glasses and angles from the professors, from the uh, uh, data scientists, from the CEO, from the politicians. And you're highlighting now how is AI impacting small medium enterprise, especially in manufacturing. And we can talk about. How, how is your experience of Industry 4.0 as a good example? Yeah, I think it's a good be nice to see, okay, what is the perception of the SMEs? Mm. So. Good idea. Very good idea. Thank you very much, Diego Galar. Thank you. It's been a true pleasure to have you here and, and uh, discuss uh, with such an experienced and knowledgeable person. It's been a true pleasure. has been a pleasure. Thank you very much. Thank, Thank you very much, Thank Diego. You. Thank you. Have an awesome evening. And hope you continue for the after after work as well. Sure. The singularity <laughs> will come up next. Sorry, guys. You're going to miss it. Sustainability. Sustainability. Circular. Uh, we didn't talk about circular economy enough. It's like 10 different topics. 10 topics that uh, we will have fun the, with. And the topic you didn't want to talk about. Uh, so yes, we have yes. to talk about that. that that's exactly. <laughs> we'll do that off camera. That's awesome. Okay. Thank you. Very thank, much. You, thank you. Thank you. Thank you.